You may be seated. Our text this morning is found in Proverbs chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 36. It can be found on page 533, the Bible's in the pew. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 36. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, All who hate me love death. Let us go before the Lord and ask his help as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we thank you as we have sung, as we have confessed, that you are our creator, that you are our sustainer. God, that you are not like us. And so we need your wisdom daily, but we need your wisdom in particular as we open up your word and seek to understand more about you. So would you give us insight? Would you give us all wisdom by your spirit And may we grow more in the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Heading into this year's NCAA tournament, there was a rumbling about this year finally being the year. And as the second weekend arrived this weekend, rumblings turned into full-fledged articles. People began actually asking, could this be the year? What year, you ask? The year when Duke and North Carolina would finally meet in the championship game to see who would cut down the nets. (laughs) Both teams were the number one seed heading into their respective brackets. Both were playing well coming into the tournament. And plus, the very draw of the bracket made it so that the only way they would face each other would be in the championship game. But unfortunately, as of Friday night, much to the celebration of the Monroe family, the wait continues. This year will not be the year that Duke and North Carolina face in the championship game because North Carolina lost to Auburn, ending their season and the potential for this dream scenario. And I will admit that not having a favorite team myself in the field, I was in this dreamer's corner. 
I wanted a Duke-UNC final, and my bracket, which is my worst effort to date, I think I have one potential Final Four candidate still alive, reflected this. So the question is, why did so many, like myself, wish for such an outcome? Now, for those of you who are unaware of basketball, college basketball in particular, Duke-UNC is considered the greatest rivalry in college basketball. They are two of the most historic basketball programs in the country, and to make matters even more exciting, their campuses are separated by a long 10 miles. Former UNC coach Dean Smith and current Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski are considered to be two of the greatest coaches in the history of college basketball. And even the current North Carolina coach, Roy Williams, has entered into being considered that conversation. Both have countless stars that have come out of their programs, some of them even Hall of Famers, Michael Jordan probably being the most famous. And while certain details may differ, the two programs are fairly equal. And twice each year, these teams face each other in the regular season, and these games are nationally televised, they're overly hyped, and rarely do they disappoint. These two teams know each other well, as most rivals do. So it would only seem fitting that at least once, these longtime rivals would meet to finally determine who is the best. We love good rivalries. We look for them, we celebrate them, and they are everywhere, not simply in the world of sports. And as we come to this last section of Proverbs chapter 8, we're going to be disappointed because we're going to find out that wisdom does not belong in this language of rivalries. There is no dream matchup of true wisdom squaring off against one of her rivals. The glory of wisdom is that she stands alone amongst her peers. Those claiming to be her rivals are merely seeking the priority that she has and will always hold. And this is good news for us this morning. Because day in and day out, we are being bombarded with rival wisdom. We are being offered what is ultimately broken and fallen, but this world tells us it is good, it is wise, it is true. And we are told to seek it. We are told what it looks like. And we're promised how great the satisfaction will be if we ever find it. But true wisdom is not one amongst a variety of wisdoms. She is not a pick what fits you best option. She is in a league all her own, far above all the other options out there. She is unlike anything else in this world. She has no rival. So she can confidently encourage us this morning to find wisdom, for there is none like her. Find wisdom, there is none like her. And she makes this point very clear in this climax of her speech in chapter 8. And we're going to see that her supremacy in all things is in the following three ways. We're going to see that wisdom appeared before creation. Then we're going to see that wisdom acted in creation. And then finally we will see that wisdom assures us of blessing. We're going to see wisdom appeared before creation, she acted in creation, and she assures blessing. First, we begin with wisdom appeared in creation. Simply, wisdom has been around since the very beginning. 
this truth stands in stark contrast to the predominant philosophies and wisdoms of our day. Take, for example, expressive individualism, which is the wisdom of our day that says life is found in simply being who you are, whatever that looks like. It's a very modern philosophy, a very modern wisdom. But the tr- and it finds its origin in maybe the 60s and the 70s. It's still fairly young. Take other examples like humanism or revolution. They stretch back a little farther to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment or the middle of the 19th century, still relatively recent. But there are others that have been around far longer, some of them as long as humanity. Buddha and Confucius started developing their philosophies around 500-400 BC. And at that same time, the great Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they also began to appear. So in the modern terms, these different philosophies and approaches to life and wisdom, we consider them almost ancient. They come from a time and a place far removed from our own. However, they still pale in comparison to true wisdom. There was a time when these things were not around. The same cannot be said regarding wisdom. Listen to her origin story as she begins it in verses 22 and 23. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, literally from everlasting, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. She makes it very clear where and when she came from. It was the Lord himself who possessed her, who had her at the very beginning. This term has some debate, but it's probably best rendered, the Lord formed her, the Lord brought her forth. And this similar idea will be repeated in verses 24 and 25 where she says, before the mountains I was brought forth, before the earth I was brought forth. She's not saying she's an entirely separate entity or a different person. There are some who would argue that wisdom is some sort of weird wife of God. That's not the case. She is not emphasizing herself as as an actual entity or person. Instead, she's emphasizing her source. It is the Lord himself. Wisdom is not some idea that's been floating out there and God was finally the one who grabbed it and held on to it for himself. He was not, as the Greek gods were, on a quest of his own to find wisdom prior to creation. Wisdom already belonged to him. It is part of his essential nature and his character. He simply brought it forth according to his plan and his purpose as an expression of his character. And this is critical for us in our understanding of wisdom. There is only one true wisdom because there is only one true God from whom wisdom comes. All the wisdoms of this earth find their origin somewhere other than God. Yes, common grace certainly means that there will be some elements of truth in them. But the problem is their starting point, their origin is in self. It is in man. It has a beginning unlike the wisdom that comes from God. This is why we sing a song like Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Apart from God, there is no such thing as wisdom. It belongs to him. He's the one who put it in its rightful place at the very beginning of his divine work. 
But wisdom also tells us not only where she began, but when she began in these few verses. There's an abundance of time references that she gives, and they're poetic. They're not the most concrete. They're highly figurative. And the purpose isn't to exactly pinpoint where in time she started, but it's confirming that she predates anything and everything that we see before us. And for this reason, it's foolish of us to look for her in things that are here, in things that are now. The intent is instead to draw us back. The phrase that she gives in, in, chapter, in verse 22 at the beginning should immediately pique our interest to go back to Genesis 1.1. The very same phrase, in the beginning. She talks about the depths in verses 24, which echoes back to Genesis 1.2, where darkness covered the depths. Without getting too lost in all of this, the emphasis is that wisdom predates creation. She predates the mountains, the depths, the hills, even the earth itself. And it is precisely because of this truth that the father urges his son throughout these first eight chapters, and he highlights it in chapter 4, verse 8, to prize her wisdom highly. Wisdom was not born yesterday. She's not simply a good idea. She's not something that man thought up just yesterday or even a millennium ago. She is a treasure from of old. Her way is proven. So what does this mean for us? First and foremost, this reality that wisdom appeared before creation should drive us to worship the only wise God. He was not obligated to reveal to us this wisdom. We are his finite creatures. He could have left us in the dark. And yet he has given us, revealed to us his wisdom. This same wisdom that predates creation is available to us in scripture. It is there to be loved. It is there to be cherished. It is there to be pursued. To be basked in. And this should also easily then persuade us to abandon the pursuit of every and any other human or worldly-based wisdom. They are not supreme. They are not finite. They have rivals. They're all contrived by fallen man in his brokenness. They have a point of origin, again, that begins with our own thoughts, with our own reasoning, with our own ability to rationalize. And essentially, they are godless. And this is difficult because this world has and will continue to give these wisdoms a level of primacy. It will do all in its power to try and devalue the wisdom, the true wisdom of God. So we need not fear or worry because only his wisdom is supreme. Only his wisdom flows out of who he is as the eternal God of all creation. Wisdom is an ancient prize that has appeared before creation. So may we pursue her. May we value her. We also see that wisdom acted during creation. Wisdom acted during creation. She was actively involved when God created all things. Notice how she changes the language from verse 26 to 27. She moves from talking about before to when. She's moving from primordial time to the time, the days of creation. And also she moves directionally. 
She begins with the heavens in verse 27, and she works her way down to earth itself, its very foundations in verse 29. And she makes it abundantly clear at every point. She says, I was there in verse 27. She says, I was beside him in verse 30. Wisdom had a front row seat to see all that God was doing when he created all things. And again, this language she chooses should direct us back, but not simply to Genesis 1 and 2, certainly should. This speech actually aligns itself even closer to Job 38 of all places. And if you remember, in Job 38, God finally answers Job. He's been complaining, along with his friends, for 37 chapters, and God finally speaks. And this is what he says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Later on, on what were its bases sunk? Or who shut in the sea with doors and prescribed limits for it and said, thus far shall you come? and no further. While Job is humbled by this question, left in silence, wisdom is boldly confessing, I was there, it was me. I was beside him. She knows the answers to all these questions because she was there at creation. And what was her role? She gives us a twofold role that she had. First, she tells us in verse 30 that she was working she calls herself the Amon, the master craftsman, or the architect. When all these elements of creation took place, they happened through the agency of God's infinite wisdom. She repeats what the Father has already revealed to the Son in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Simply put, creation sings the wisdom of God. There is an order to it. There is a structure to it. There is a harmony that is based upon wisdom, God's wisdom. But sadly, we and Solomon as well know that looking at creation it's very hard to see the order and the harmony that is still present. All we sometimes can see is the depths of the chaos that's been plunged into. So it can be hard to see wisdom in all the brokenness of the created order. But rest assured, it is still there. The corruption and the effect of the fall, while universally devastating, is not ultimate. There are evidences of wisdom. It has not been eradicated. As the Dutch theologian Bavink says, the wisdom of God is, however, manifest in the creating, ordering, guidance, and government of all things. Wisdom remains the master worker, which creates and governs all things, leading them onward to their destination, which is the glorification of God's name. There is still authority in wisdom's speech that all creation should heed and follow, it leads both to the glory of God and also to man's joy. But second, we see that not only was wisdom working, she was delighting, she was rejoicing in verses 30 and 31. And again, this draws us back to Job 38, where in the midst of creation, God confesses that all the sons of God shouted for joy during creation. There was a party in heaven when God was creating. 
Wisdom was in that company. She was there rejoicing, singing. It says even playing with God and with the angels. As she gazed upon God's work, culminating in us, our image, the image bearers of God, she could not help but find great pleasure and great satisfaction. If anyone here has fashioned or created something, you know what this feels like. I don't call myself a carpenter, I don't really call myself a handyman, but I did make a coffee table that we have in our living room. While the process was extremely frustrating and nearly forced me to quit on multiple occasions, I do find a level of joyful satisfaction whenever I use it. This is how wisdom views the creation that she helped to create. She literally says that she played with it. Picture a child on Christmas morning surrounded by the toys they have just freshly opened. All they want to do is sit there and play for however long mom and dad will let them. This is joy at its finest. This is what true delight looks like. But notice where wisdom begins her delight and her rejoicing. It's in the presence of the Lord. I was his delight, rejoicing before him always. It is not enough for us simply to seek these evidences of wisdom. This should lead us to delight in the God who is perfectly wise. Wisdom should bring us delight. We delight in God who is wise and all the works of his hand as we see them in creation around us. So may we relish, may we cherish in this delight, in this joy, in this rejoicing. And this role of wisdom as a workman, as a witness, emphasizes the confession that we said earlier this morning about Jesus Christ himself in Colossians 1. I'll repeat it again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ was the wisdom of God actively taking part in creation. Greater still, Jesus is the master workman, that amon of God's new creation. That word is used again in Revelation 3.14 where Jesus calls the words he's speaking, the words of the amen, the amon, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is the firstborn, the first of his acts of the new creation. All of us, united to him by faith, will experience new life just like him now and for all eternity. Jesus is the amen, the illusion, that illusion, illusion, not illusion, illusion to that skilled worker at God's side. It is Christ who created, but is also creating a new creation, a people after his own image. And it is this, the wisdom of God in Christ, that is working to bring all things to their appointed end. The pursuit and the love of wisdom is not a pursuit and love of a higher thinking, of a clearer understanding. It's not even about a better way of life. It is the pursuit and the love of Jesus Christ himself, the wisdom of God, the one who created all things and by his death and his resurrection has promised to recreate all things after himself. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God that has been personified throughout this chapter of Proverbs 8. 
and most pointedly right here in our text this morning. He has no rival. He has existed before creation. He acted in creation. Love and cherish Christ by loving and cherishing wisdom. So we see that wisdom has no rival because she appeared before creation. We see that she has no rival because she acted in creation. And now, lastly, wisdom assures us of blessing. She says that she is the place, she alone is the place where true and lasting happiness are found. This makes sense. If both of the previous two points, she appeared before creation, she was active in creation, if they're true, then this is the natural result. It makes sense that blessing would flow through wisdom. And notice again, we have a shift in language. She's no longer just voicing her speech to any and all. She is speaking like the Father. She's speaking to sons, to daughters. She is pleading with those who she just confessed to be delighting in. She wants the children of man, us, not only to see, but to keep and to follow the wisdom that has been made evident before and during and in the midst of creation. And she wants us to experience the blessing that is found there. And this idea of blessing is from Psalm, familiar in Psalms, it's in Proverbs. It is the definition of what true happiness is. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 reveals how it comes by both avoiding sin and delighting in the word of the Lord. And wisdom picks up on this truth. Her ways have been revealed as the ways of God. So she says, to keep my ways, blessing will come by heeding her message. And she could not be any clearer. Blessing, true happiness, is found in obedience. It's found in obedience. In listening to and following the wisdom of God found in Scripture. Sadly, our fallen nature, my fallen nature included, wants to think and argues differently. We like to think that blessing comes not by obedience, but by casting off any level of obedience or responsibility. As long as there's someone to obey, life is joyless and it's unsatisfying. And this is why you being you, this is why doing what feels good is today's wisdom. The only person you need to obey is yourself and your desires. Wisdom calls this a lie. She calls it death. She says, instead, receive instruction. Pursue obedience. This is what marks a truly wise person. And she goes one step further. It's not only good, but it's a feast. She says to feast on it, if you will. This is going to come out more in chapter 9, which we'll look at in a few weeks, where her house, the house of wisdom, is pictured as this festal gathering. But in verse 34, she foreshadows this feast by what sounds like an invitation. She says, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. She's inviting those who want blessing to come to her house. She's pleading with them to spend some time with her on a daily basis, listening to the words of life that she offers. She knows where blessing comes from, and she's eager to share it with those who listen. She wants them to know what it's like 
to rejoice before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And her interests are for those who she has confessed to loving us. So the application here is really the imperatives that she gives in verse 33. Hear instruction. Be wise. Do not neglect it. So do you relish your time in Scripture as a time to grow in wisdom? Or are you busy heeding the instruction offered by whatever feeds the, the pop-ups on your phone the, or the, your computer, whatever it is that you run to? Wisdom is what holds out true happiness to us. May we eagerly run to her and joyfully receive the instruction that she freely gives. Blessing, however, is not all that comes through wisdom. She says that life itself is found in her. She closes her speech by saying, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. She couldn't get any clearer. Wisdom is not merely a way of life. It is the way to life. Equally is the choice to reject wisdom. Rejecting wisdom is not a neutral stance towards wisdom. It's not simply to say, I'm not interested. Rejoicing or failing to find her is to hate her. Again, this makes sense. If I were to come up here this morning and tell you, I don't like spending time with my wife. I am not interested in what she has to say. I don't really care to know her deeply. Hopefully you would all be sitting there in your seat saying, this guy hates his wife. He wants nothing to do with her. No matter how hard I may try to spin it, the message I'm proclaiming to you is, I hate my wife. And yet, this is exactly what you and I do with wisdom, with God's word, with, his, with scripture. We claim to love it. We claim to desire it. We say even that we want it. And yet, we have nothing to do with her. We have, don't enjoy it. We don't know it. And in essence, we're saying we hate wisdom. And this is the message that fallen man has boasted in since that day in the garden. It is our confession of rejecting the God from whom wisdom finds its source. And if we continue, the results will be catastrophic. Violence and death is what wisdom says. This is the exact opposite of what comes by loving wisdom. Ultimately, it is the curse. To love wisdom is to assure blessing... To hate wisdom is to assure curse. It is that simple. It is separation now and in eternity from the God of all wisdom. So do you want blessing? The blessing of a joy-filled life on earth and more so the blessing of an everlasting life in the presence of God? Then pursue wisdom. Love and embrace wisdom. Young people especially, do not wait until you're older to get wisdom. The mantra is, life is short, enjoy it while you're young. That's not biblical wisdom. It is the language of self-injury, it is the language of death. Life is short, game wisdom while you're still breathing is a better option. It will pay dividends both now and in the life to come. Wisdom assures us of blessing. Again, as an avid sports fan, I love a good rivalry. The joy and the entertainment reach new heights 
when two relative equals square off against one another. And while I certainly will enjoy whatever teams end up uh, playing next Monday night, there will be a bit of sadness thinking about what could have been. The draw of a Duke North Carolina championship game is simply too good to pass up. Maybe next year will be that year. But I must admit that I struggle with similar feelings when it comes to my pursuit of godly wisdom. I treat it as though biblical wisdom is simply one option, maybe even just a slightly better one among many. I will admit that I dabble in some things that this world says aligns with wisdom instead of what God's word has made abundantly clear. And every time, every time, I find these so-called rivals to be nothing but empty and vain pursuits. They are not only inferior, they are dangerous. Again, wisdom has no rival. She is in a league all her own. There is none that we can compare her to. Only the wisdom of the internal God appeared before creation. Only the wisdom of the creator acted during creation. And only the wisdom of the father of lights from whom all blessings come assures us of blessing. And this is all the proof that you and I should ever need to spend our time on earth pursuing wisdom. It is the only reliable wisdom under heaven. And it alone will prove worth the effort both in this life and in the one to come. Find wisdom. There is none like her. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that it is so far above our own. God, thank you that it is so far above anything this world has ever seen. Forgive us for where we have pursued that wisdom, where we have failed to embrace, to love, and to cherish your wisdom. May you lead us to, to love, to find wisdom, to experience the blessing that comes in knowing and cherishing her. May we do so faithfully. May we do so obediently. May we do so to the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.